Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, November 23rd, 2020. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Please go to commentarymagazine.com and check out some of the wonderful highlights of our December issue. We've talked a bit about what the panelists on this podcast have written. I also want to talk to tell you about uh, the exciting first appearance in commentary of my old friend PJ O'Rourke, who has a piece about a new biography of John F. Kennedy that is ambrosia from start to finish. It is ambrosia with a side of nectar. It is a delicious, delightful, thrilling piece. It's called Shamalot. Please go read it. And then uh, PJ's and my old friend Nick Eberstadt uh, with a remarkable piece on America after COVID and um, what kinds of economic dislocations have happened as a result of the virus and the public response and how we need to wean ourselves of it before we destroy ourselves financially and spiritually. Uh, A bunch of other really good things uh, I heartily uh, commend to you. Um, Go to commentarymagazine.com. We give you a few free reads and ask you to subscribe. You know you should subscribe. You're listening to this podcast. You enjoy this podcast. It's one way you can help support are continuing the podcast and you need to read the magazine you need to read the blog you need to read our content please subscribe with me three of our most valued subscribers (laughs) not subscribers contributors and editors and staffers senior writer christine rosen Hi, Christine. Hi, John. I'm trying to get you to, to call me the Kraken, Christine the Kraken Rosen. It's just oh, I'm getting there. I'm very frustrated right I'm now. Getting but, all right. I'm getting there. Hi, John. And uh, executive editor Abe the Kraken Greenwald. <laughs> Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And, of course, Kraken-in-chief associate editor Noah Kraken-Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Big fan. First time, long time. <laughs> um. <laughs> So um, we are all excited about the uh, apparently releasing the Kraken meant firing Sidney Powell, who has been released on her own recognizance, apparently. Um, So just to recap, on Thursday, while Rudy Giuliani's hair dye sweated down his face as he reported on thousands and hundreds of thousands of cases of voter fraud, not one of which he actually substantiated or made an effort to prove in a courtroom uh, until, uh, because that wasn't the argument was being made, wasn't that the ballots were fraudulent, but that they were being counted under under discrepant standards in Pennsylvania, thrown out um, in a really snotty uh, decision, an opinion uh, by uh, Philadelphia, by a district court judge, and then, of course, uh, Sidney Powell, uh, the lawyer uh, of some sort, uh, who got up and then announced that Venezuela was running our elections uh, from beyond the grave, uh, apparently said too much because then Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon, Sunday afternoon, Rudy Giuliani and uh, Jenna Ellis, another a towering genius of a, of a fourth-rate legal moronity uh issue a statement saying that uh, Sidney Powell is now uh, is not with her is not with them anymore she never was she never will be that's why she was at the press conference 
at the Republican National Committee on Thursday and was referred to, I believe, by Kaylee McEnany as part of the, what was her term? Crack legal team? Crack? Strike force. Strike force. Crack elite strike force. Um, of course, she's been uh, saying, Sidney Powell, that she was going to release the Kraken any minute. Uh, and I hope you now all remember that the Kraken is a mythological creature. <laughs> so there is no Kraken. Who is um, defeated in the end? Who is defeated? Right? Yeah. It's not even a great metaphor. It's just yeah. So every every way you slice it, it's a mythological creature. It's a bad guy. So releasing the Kraken is like something bad guys do. It's not a good. It's not a good guy creature, and it's not a golem. And then of course it it loses. So, um. I'd like to say this is all, you know, has descended into the farce that it uh, began as, but um, uh, can we just sort of dismiss this as funny or, you know, as just the sort of on this way station of this bizarre presidency and this bizarre post-presidency that's going to be over on January 20th and then it'll be whatever it is, it'll be a bizarre post-post-presidency, but at least won't have an official imprimatur to it or... Do we need to think about this in more in deeper, darker, more apocalyptic, or more pessimistic terms? Christine, where do you uh, where do you come out on that? I mean, I think we're laughing and mocking not because we don't take seriously his what he's trying to do here, um, but because it we have faith in in the process. I think all four of us, and we do believe it's going to be fine. And you know, Biden is going to be the new president who's sworn in in January. I will say this: I think that there's a there's um, there's a real problem that the Republicans have right now as a party in how they respond to this. And it, it does kind of pain. It's painful to watch everybody twist in the wind and try to figure out how they're going to how they're going to talk about this. But they need to talk about this. I mean, we've had a few Republicans come out and say this is not we need to just move on, knock it off. Uh, there should be some people behind the scenes trying to lobby Trump to just stop it. Um and, you know, then there's the broader issue of whether 70 million people actually do believe the election was stolen. And that's going to be a long term problem down the line if there's not some legitimacy restored for those voters. I mean, they need to feel like the process works. Ironically, the Republicans have a really, really imminent threat that they need to be thinking about in these terms. And that's that if you're telling all Republican voters in, say, the state of Georgia that the process is is rigged, are they going to turn out and vote in the upcoming special election that will determine the fate of the Senate? Just say so. Okay. Uh, Noah, where are you on the darkness lightness scale? I am uh, a, just a, a source of brilliant incandescent white light on this whole episode. And it frustrates people to no end for whom their anxiety is a source of comfort um, and, and they spend more of their time being not being anxious about the administration and its postures and its hostility towards norms and conventions, but being angry at people who aren't, um, which to me is much more of a, uh, just a pressure, you know, social pressure and desirability, a certain desirability that they want to see, uh, you know, models of behavior evinced by other people. I think, I think, I find a lot of this to be comic, um, pathetic, kind of pitiable. I wrote as much. Um, and that's a source of frustration for people who want it to be something much more dangerous. I think to justify their own um, manic uh, state in which they've been in for the last four years. Um, I don't see how you you watch that press conference and the subsequent events and say, 
wow, these guys really know what they're doing. Um, they have their their finger on every trigger and their hand on every lever, and they are pulling the strings behind the scenes, and you don't even know what they're doing to undermine democracy. I mean, it's all on the table. Everything is transparent here. And, you know, now we're turning Sid Powell into this, you know, wrecker, a saboteur, or a deviationist who's probably secretly aligned with the forces of, of Joe Biden trying to steal this election. I mean, that's coming next. Um, it's It's just comic. I don't, I don't, I can't get worked up over it because it's, it's failing in every way. And while it is inculcating in Republican supporters, a a feeling and impression that something bad happened here, that's not a new condition. As we've talked about a lot, Democrats have been dealing with that psychological pressure, social desirability pressure on them for the last four years. It's legal impact. It's, it's effect on the stability of the public has been way overestimated by people who observe politics for a living. Okay, so Abe, um, let me just uh, let me just uh, propose this idea. So Trump loses the election, Repub- and he decides he wants to say he didn't lose the election. They need to contest it. Republican senators, Republican politicians, and indeed m- some of the Republican intelligentsia go along with this. Some believe it, some are afraid. Okay. Last week, I went into a rant, I guess a week ago, saying, like, Trump should be a man. He's not being a man, owns up to his loss. He's not being a man. Got a lot of angry mail. People really didn't like my saying this. Um, But you know who else is not being a man? Like, the rest of the Republican Party. I mean, if they're afraid of Trump and they're afraid of the Trump voter, they're afraid that that they're going to get blamed. They're afraid that Trump is going to do to them somehow what he did to Bob Corker and uh, and Jeff Flake. Uh, they're afraid that he's going to support primary challenges. They're afraid that his people are going to, you know, say that uh, they were disloyal and all of this. You know what? Suck it up. Like, be a man. Like, wh- are you are you guys are. Are you just like living afraid of your own shadow? We don't know how powerful or strong this is. We have a, we have weird things being said. Like Laura Ingram said something the other day. Like seventy four million people think that that Trump won the election. That is not right. Seventy four million people voted for Trump in every election. There's a winner and a loser, and the people who support the loser. Don't think that the election was won by their guy because they voted for him. And that includes, you know, the vast majority of the Republican electorate that voted for Trump. I don't care what these polls say or don't say. I it, it's 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 a ludicrous thing to ask people, you know, whether or not and they oh my god, 50% say 70% say 90% say that the election was stolen. Well, I mean, when have we asked this question before? Did you did you ask it of Democrats in 1984? I don't know what they would have said. Who knows what people say when they're asked questions about which they don't generally have or are required to have a developed opinion. But, but also, what the- about what about this? Like, be a man, or you know, be a be a be an adult, be a grown up. Like this guy is crapping all over the country in our system and you're standing there and letting him do it because you're a wuss. Yeah. You're wusses. Speaking of, so there's also this idea of like 
you know, you should let the the loser, the losing side sort of give them some time to get over, you know, the loss and process their feelings. This weird kind of therapeutic um, language about this that is also uh, very wussified um, as long as we're going there. Um, and yeah, I agree with you entirely. And to link this up to your first question about, you know, is this sort of comic or is it dark? I think... As as far as it concerns the country, it's it's comic, which is to say it's it's increasingly um, epiphenomena, which is to say it's it Trump what Trump and his team are up to is is increasingly separated from the actual workings of the country and the system, and have and as has less and less to do with it. He's, he's they're sort of um, playing themselves out of the the of the White House. Anyway, by by virtue of doing this, um, because they're they're going out on a limb to places that have nothing to do with the actual uh, workings of governance. Um, for the party, for the Republican Party, it's darker. For 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 the party, it is it is a dark thing because it is having a um, uh, a sort of a, a real felt impact and change on the party in the, in the very way you describe. I mean, there's a, there's a way in which. Trump's, you know, political brilliance in 2016, which was mostly improvisatory, but nonetheless, you know, you can't pull off what he pulled off without being without being deserving the credit for having, you know, done something no one ever thought was even remotely possible. But, you know, he kind of hijacked an entire party and he turned it to his own advantage. And then having won it and won it over, he then... Uh, guided his he made his way through in part by supplying um, a restive base with the things that he thought that they wanted and he was right uh, a lot of battle a lot of a lot of you know tussling and fights with um, you know with media and with democratic politicians and with liberals and then also like paying them off in in the form of various policies that they would like and so uh, he coddled them and supported them, and then he scared the bejesus out of everybody else who might have been in a position to separate themselves from him or say they didn't like what he was doing or stuff like that. And he, that was also arguably even more brilliantly done uh, than the other way around. And so you have a kind of Stockholm, the Republican Party either is or is not Trump's party. I don't know. It's 160 years old. It doesn't, you know, it's older than Trump. Trump's only been there for four years, like, you know. Uh, but there is a kind of Stockholm syndrome that is set in where uh, people who are afraid of him now think they love him. I mean, I don't know. The, the, Lindsey Graham is like the perfect Stockholm syndrome person. But He said Trump was a monster and a horror and a con man and terrible and all of this. And four years later, he's like, he, the election was stolen from him. It's like, you know, okay, so what the hell is that? Like, is it, is it Stockholm Syndrome? Like, do they really believe it? Or is it a, a, a an actually rational response to the reaction to Trump? And by that, I mean, we have heard nothing, but he is ushering in fascism for four years, which was never true and, and is not true. But the, the, 
it did actually have a strange uh, effect on Republicans, which was to rally around this person who I think they many of them genuinely believe has been a poor leader as president. But they what are they going to do? Like they can't because if they criticize him at all, that they're considered fellow travelers with the, this guy's a fascist crowd, which, of course, includes our mainstream media. So I feel I, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for Republicans, including Lindsey Graham. It's a it's a pretty impossible path to, to travel. But I but this is why now we're at the point where they can they can separated. They can say, you know, right. as you see, he was not a fascist. He's doing this clownish, like distance yourself. That's what right. politics. You're supposed right. to be able to read the room. Right. <laughs> so no. it began as a hostile takeover is ending as a hostage crisis. So it's, it has precisely the same character throughout the last four years. And you are starting to see some people who are making, who are standing by these allegations, maybe not Sidney Powell's. There are hundreds of people at the DOJ and the uh, you know FBI and Department of Defense who are behind this you know sort of this weird Bircher conspiracy that she's cracked up for herself. But people who aren't giving it air and aren't aren't immediately dismissive of it, not because the allegations are really serious, but because this is payback. This is vengeance. You guys did this to him for four years, so guess what? We're gonna do it to you. And maybe, yeah, you noticed that Don Jr. took a meeting with some Russian people in 2016, and that was bad. But you noticed that it was bad, and that's much more bad. And so, you know, you're part of this, too. Everybody who ever noticed anything bad that the Trump administration did, this is what you get for it. Well, it's not much of a threat because you're just making a clown of yourself. I don't understand how I'm being punished by you just rolling in mud and then presenting it as some sort of a, a display of, you know, a, a, a petulance or a protest. It just doesn't, it doesn't register with me. I don't feel bad for you. You know, I, I read somewhere that Trump had said privately, uh, you know, one of the stories that sort of like, you know, Trump behind the scenes knows he lost. Right. Who knows if he knows he lost or he didn't, you know, he says, probably says five different things an hour and who cares really. But that he said, you know, he lost, but uh, what what the base wants is for him to fight because they were upset. They thought that Romney and McCain were losers and that, you know, he's not a loser. So he's going to fight for them because he's not a loser. Except Romney and McCain did lose. And so did he. He is a loser. They were losers. So the question is, how do you handle the experience of losing? Losing, in this case, not being a value judgment, but a simple description of what happens in a contest where only one person comes out on top. There is a winner and there is a loser. And part of the nightmare of life is that there are times when you were a winner and there are times when you were a loser. And it is more incumbent on you that you handle the losing well than it is that you handle the winning well. I mean, that's uh, obvious. Like, um, you can, uh, losing something or losing a job or losing a contest or something is something that can poison and ruin your entire life if you don't have a proper perspective on it. Um, this idea that somehow Trump is fulfilling the wishes of the people who voted for him by saying that he won when he lost is an unbelievably insulting perspective to have on 75 million people who voted for him. They live in the real world. They lose jobs all the time. You know, it's like they know people who've lost jobs. Are those people supposed to walk around and say, I didn't lose my job or my, you know, my business didn't close or, you know, or it's all that, you know, it is, 
it is a fascinating window into this idea that everything is just image and nothing is real and no no adult behavior is incumbent on anyone anymore because they did it first they did it first but i don't know what they did first no one's ever done this before i mean stacy abrams did it but i mean stacy abrams is the candidate in the one of 50 states he's the president of the united states yeah, some people don't concede. Some people claim that, you know, they lost the boxing match because the boxing match was, uh, you know, improperly uh, referenced. I mean, why would you even bring it up? Like, there are the people who equate what's happening now with the Russia probe and its associated investigations and its associated fallout. Why would you mention that? Because the parallel you're trying to make is that was all made up. So you're saying this is all made up too? Like, what, why would you even say it? What, what is the thought process that led you to that or to make you think that that was a sound argument in the first place? Unless you're surrounded with people who are so consumed with animus and so bitter about their, their political station that they would think that that's a salient argument. But a lot of the people who Trump surrounded himself with were the B, they were like the B, C, D team, right? There were a lot of, and their insecurity is now revealing itself in an interesting way, I think. Because if you're, if you're someone who knows how this world works, then, and, and this includes candidates who lose like Mitt Romney or John McCain, you know, you just, you, you've got to reabsorb into the system. And if Trump was actually less of a narcissist and more of an actual strategic businessman, he would do what Hillary Clinton did and go create a massive, you know, create, or Bill Clinton, create a massive foundation, buck rake and travel around the world doing whatever you want. I mean, there are models for, for presidential losers that he, he could emulate. Um, but this is where his narcissism and belligerence, which in part got him elected, is now actually making his exit painful and ridiculous. Absolutely. Okay, so let me uh, let me just pull back for a minute and talk to you about today's sponsor, Headspace. Because look, life can be stressful even under normal circumstances. And this year, as we all know, are not even normal circumstances. So look, you may, may have tried meditation before and it didn't work for you or you felt like you were doing it wrong, but you need something. Well, if mental health is now part of your self-care plan, as it should be, you owe it to yourself to try Headspace, your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. Headspace is one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. You don't need to spend a ton of money to reconnect with yourself. You can start to improve nearly every aspect of your life with your phone and a little Headspace. 10 minutes of your day can make a world of difference. We all know the benefits of taking time working on your physical self. But how about your mental self? So you really have to go a three-minute SOS meditation for you. If you need some help falling asleep, Headspace has wind-down sessions. Their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. And it's backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier. Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash commentary. That's headspace.com slash commentary for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. 
This is the best deal offered right now. So head to headspace.com slash commentary today. So uh, moving on from the uh, from the administration that is going to disappear on January 20th at noon to the administration that will begin on January 20th at 12.01 p.m. Uh, we have the first cabinet appointments announced, uh, or almost, they're going to be announced tomorrow officially. We have um, Michelle Flournoy at uh, Defense, somebody who, uh, it was almost expected she would get Defense at the end of the, uh, at the end of the, Obama administration, and then I think it was presumed she would ha- have gotten it had Hillary Clinton won the presidency, obviously the first female Secretary of Defense, um, respected person in the establishment defense community, um, and most uh, apparently uh, Jake Sullivan, uh, Hillary Clinton's deputy at state and a longtime Democratic foreign policy hand at the National Security Council, and Antony Blinken. Uh, as the new Secretary of State, who uh, has, shall we say, decades of Biden experience. Um, he was Jake a, Sullivan is NSA, by the way. Oh, is he national? Oh, he's not the National Security Advisor. That's what they're floating him for. Well, yeah, didn't NSA. I say? I said, said national, I said National Security Council, didn't I? He said State and National Security. No, no, Council. no, no. Blinken is State. Yes. Tony Blinken is State. Okay, so Blinken is a is an old. Democratic foreign worked for the was a speechwriter for Clinton on foreign policy, then was Biden's national security advisor when he was vice president, and then moved on to work uh, also on the National Security Council for de- he was deputy assistant secretary of state or deputy secretary of state or something like that. Um, uh, I, I've known him for twenty five years. He's actually a very nice guy, very pleasant, very moderate in his disposition and mien and mean and, and manner. And reading some of the things that he's been up to, particularly, I commend to you a transcript of an interview that Walter, our friend Walter Russell Mead, did with him uh, this summer. Uh, you know, a virtual interview uh, at the Hudson Institute. You can just Google Blinken Mead Hudson Institute, and you can find it. Um, sounds very much like a mid '90s Clinton person. Talk about human rights. Talk about democracy. Talk about the importance of trade. You know, this is the way we connect with people outside the United States uh, through trade and trade agreements, and and uh, democracy is really the way that we can relate best with other countries and all that. So, I guess the question that is posed here is. Is this what the Biden foreign policy is actually going to look like? That it's it's it may be uh, it may kind of step backward over Obama into a more uh, the bipartisan consensus that sort of existed toward the tail end of the of the Clinton administration. Uh, when we were mostly having fights about whether or not it was legitimate to go to to work to free uh, Bosnia from the from the Serbian uh, from from sort of Serbian domination but uh, democracy free exchange of goods human rights and uh, and, and not so woke uh, so what do you what do you guys make of this I mean I think that would be nice I, and I think I think I think it will try I think the administration will try to do that Um Again, just echoing something I said last week on the podcast, the thing is that there are going to be these um, groups that were deeply involved in the Obama 
administration or, or connected to um, in, in sort of advisory capacities um, that are um, going to be reanimated um, with Biden in the White House. I mean, once again, now, for example, we're hearing about how um, J Street um, is um, sort of up and, you know, uh, sort of, you know, getting its getting its uh, getting its uh, marshalling exactly. its troops to, uh-huh. to, to, you know, start, you know, talking to the administration about its awful anti-Israel policies. So there, there's, you know, and groups like that and and, and um, um, groups in favor of the JCPOA. And uh, um, so so there there are going to be all these sort of clouds of Obama era uh, influence that are going to try to go to work on some of the same people who are going to be in the uh, Biden administration. And, and we'll see how um, the administration handles that, if it sort of fends them off, what what sort of hearing it gives them. And um, ha- how it affects their policies. Yeah, there's um, I, I, you get that there's a lot of you know just sort of rhetorical banal rhetorical nods towards the you know the value of negotiation. We need to get everybody back to the table and blah blah blah. But if you actually like read what they're talking about with regards to challenges posed by near peer competitors like China or rogue states like Iran they don't really seem to know how to navigate the new environment Uh, and it's valuable insofar as they recognize that there is a new environment that, that what they bequeathed to Donald Trump in 2017 isn't what they're going to inherit in 2021. And you have people like Michelle Flournoy who have said uh, the maximum pressure campaign, for example, on Iran has effectively pressured Iran, but it doesn't provide them with any sort of face-saving way to re-engage in negotiations. And you need to create some sort of a face-saving off-ramp for them in order to negotiate. And negotiating is 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 valuable because it's negotiations, and negotiations are good. Um, and that's not really a policy per se. It's sort of a, a self-affirmation but it doesn't really reflect anything that a government could pursue. And it's quite possible that you're going to have just because of the disruption of the Trump era, that you'll have an entropic continuation of that disruptive foreign policy, because there really is no way to put the toothpaste back in the tube, specifically with regards to Iran. Well, and, and similarly with China, right? I mean, he, the, I read the, the blanket interview with Mead, which was fascinating, but there are a lot of, um, uh, kind of soothing uh, phrases he uses. Like he talks about, oh, engagement with trade and this and that. And it's very soothing, really. It was like having a nice warm cup of tea. But I kept thinking, yeah, China's got an ethnic minority that it's gotten concentration camps. So how do you talk about trade when they're using, you know, what's basically a form of slave labor and they are, you know, from what we, from the accounts that we do know, absolutely uh, violating human rights left and right. So how do you, if you talk about human rights in the same breath that you talk about, you know, reopening trade negotiations, what there's a lot of cynicism underneath that nice, pleasing phrasing, I found. Well, you know, the other thing <laughs> that's striking about um, about Blinken's appointment uh, and, and, and Jake Sullivan's appointment in some ways is that um, <clears throat> the real question here has to do with, is Biden going to strike out on his own in a, in a, a way? like have a have his own foreign policy and his own team that is loyal to him um or is it going to be kind of like obama 3 and um i i think i think it's interesting that uh, despite all the trial balloons 
uh, Susan Rice went nowhere. So Susan Rice is not going to be Secretary of State. Now, there's a whole line that says, well, she would have a tough confirmation in a closely held, you know, with a Republican-dominated Senate if the Republicans win because of Benghazi and they don't like her and they would want to shoot her down and all of that. And maybe that's true and maybe that's not true. Who knows? Like, that's a that's a... That's an interesting call, but I mean, Susan Rice is Obama's person, not Biden's person, and and Tony Blinken is a Biden person, and we have a history of this. When the uh, first Bush administration came in after the Reagan administration, and everybody in the Reagan administration thought, "Great, it's the third term of Reagan. Everybody will, you know, people shift around, get new jobs. It'll be really interesting." And in fact, the Bush personnel people were quite hostile to the Reagan people, often quite particularly at the beginning. And what they wanted to know was, were you with Bush in 80? They wanted to make sure that the people who said supported Bush in 1980 against Reagan when they were rivals got the cream of the crop picks of the best jobs. They didn't want people who were going to say, well, this is how we did it in the Reagan administration. And, you know, when I was with Reagan in 76 in California, we did this they wanted their own people. Bush wanted people who were loyal to Bush, not loyal to the Republican Party or the conservative movement or all of that. Um, and and that was a deep need on his part. Now, there's a four-year gap between Obama and and Biden. But, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's inarguable that whereas the Reagan idea, the Reaganite idea that Bush was basically elected to... to to do Reagan's third term was in fact correct and that the Bush people were foolish in the way they had behaved. And they actually were, it was a pretty lousy administration despite the weird effort to gloss it up uh, following George H.W. Bush's death a couple of years ago um, that uh, Biden got elected on his own, right? Uh, a, you know, there's a reason to think that uh, you know, Obama made this horrible mistake by favoring Hillary over him in 2016, and basically making it impossible for him to run then. But you know, he didn't inter- he did not endorse him. He did not say he wanted him for president. He did not do lift a finger for him. And Biden ran his own campaign with its own message that had very little to do with Obama, except that he could say. You know, remember me, I was I helped run the country back then. Um, and so I think this notion that we have that we're basically just going to go back into the JCPOA and this and we're going to do that we're gonna do, with the uh, with the exception of the Paris Climate Accords, which I think it is absolutely certain we will become a signatory to in some fashion, whatever that means. Uh, it can't be a treaty because the Senate won't pass it, but, you know, it'll something like that. There's no. I don't think we should expect that we're simply going to have the Obama administration's policies reenacted. Biden will want to be his own man, and no, Biden may the, have some hostility toward toward Obama for having like treated him so condescendingly and so contemptuously over the years, where he thought he couldn't possibly win the presidency in 2016, and then look what happened to Obama's... And, and what's more, look, as as we wrote about, Noah, you and I, at the end of the 2016 campaign, look what Obama did to the Democratic Party by the end of his term. Yeah, you suggested the snapback would be to the 90s, and I think that's probably more a, a better skeleton key to understand 
the Biden administration, nascent Biden administration's foreign policy instincts, there was some, and that's, some of that's valuable when it comes to the Middle East, because it's, you know, the reality-based community and good for them. But it's not so great when it comes to East Asia. Um, There was this little nugget in a New York Times story about China, in which it talked about how the Trump administration was considering uh, some last minute measures on their way out the door to punish China for security crackdowns in Hong Kong and Xinjiang uh, with regard to the Uyghurs. And the Biden administration's campaign people who talked to the um, talked to the Times not for attribution were, were not very happy about that. Uh, they talked, you know, they were like, well, I don't know how we can we can probably undo some of that. We have to undo a lot of it. It's going to it's going to be it's not necessarily hostile to China. It won't get them back to, again, the, the, the vaunted negotiating table, which is so valuable. Um, but that's I, I don't understand why you would do that. If you are looking to have some sort of a conflictual and des- deservedly necessarily conflictual relationship with China, particularly with regards to um, human rights issues and anti-democratic issues like that. That's a gift that the Trump administration is giving you. You can say, well, I am, you know, my hands are tied. You know, all these wheels are in motion. We can't just roll it back necessarily. And we're going to need to engage in some, we're going to request some concessions and need to get some concessions in order to revive the, the, the kind of uh, collegial trade negotiations that we had in the status quo ante. If you want to get back there, this is what you need to give us. But they're not even considering that. That's... That to me is the, that's the other side of this liberal internationalist coin of which I'm otherwise relatively friendly towards that views, you know, the international integration into international institutions as being the pathway towards democracy as something of an article of faith at this point that deserves to be and has been tested. And if the Biden administration just simply disregards the results of those tests, you know, that's not a great sign. What I what I've heard in and around the Council on Foreign Relations over the last four or five years is oddly quiet support for the Trump administration's taking a tough line on on Chinese uh, business practices, particularly not not human rights here, but the but the you know the refusal to to sanctity of contract does not exist in China. This idea that basically. Uh, any deal that you make uh, in China, you have to bring in an ch- existing Chinese business to be your co-partner who can then steal your technology and do all this stuff. And that, you know, various people who are part of the liberal democratic establishment would tell you quietly and privately, though they would never say so publicly, that this it was, you know, it was well, it was, uh, it was uh, pie time that somebody took this kind of line toward China. And I'm not so sure that that won't become a kind of default position going into 2021 and that because Trump was himself inconstant in the way he talked about China and dealt with China, that uh, they can't simply sort of take on the tougher on China thing while saying that they were like taking our policy in a different direction from Trump, which is what they're going to want to do everywhere, say they're reversing Trump field. But in fact, in this case, they would be kind of supporting that part of the Trump agenda that Trump, when he could focus on it, might actually, could actually get some, not tariffs, not, you know, imposing But that's the thing, but that's the thing, is that if you're prioritizing commercial relations here, be it in tariffs or trade or, or, uh, you know, establishing the rules of the road for intellectual property, then you're, you're going to be sacrificing the, the levers that you have to, force some concessions from China on democratic 
issues. Well, on that's a question. Issues. That's an interesting question because I don't know that that. I mean, I, we we sacrificed all kinds of things at the altar of free trade with China and got no assurances or guarantees on human rights or anything like that. Maybe getting tough with them might bear some different kinds of consequences. That's what we don't know because we haven't really had a a constant policy. Let's move on, by the way, to the Middle East a little bit because interestingly, the appointment of Tony Blinken as Secretary of State, um, who is a who's a Jew, in fact, his father uh, Don, who was Clinton's ambassador to Hungary, served on when commentary was part of the American Jewish Committee was on Commentary Magazine's publication committee uh, in the 1980s, um, uh, and uh, Tony has signaled uh, that he. Uh, that Biden isn't going to look to fight, get into fights with Israel. Whereas we know that in the incoming Obama administration, Obama had private meetings where he said, I'm going to show tough love. We need to have daylight, but blah, 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 all of that stuff. Um, and Rashida Tlaib uh, came out last night and said, okay, but he better not stop me from talking about the racist policies of Bibi Netanyahu because, you know, the Secretary of State has the ability to censor a member of Congress. He's going to stop her with his magical thunderbolts from Foggy Bottom that will seal her mouth. Okay, but that's a perfect example of a different challenge he's going to face on the foreign policy front, which is the the uh, woke left of his party. And, you know, look, this will happen with China, too. I mean, let's not forget who is hardest hit by uh, Trump's China policy with regard to TikTok. It was Taylor Lawrence at The New York Times who might lose TikTok. So, But there is an entire very active very social media savvy domestic constituency for for which knows very little about how foreign policy actually works that loves to gin up these controversies and he'll be getting that from the left i think constantly constantly and they've had free reign for 4 years because they've all felt they're on the same team because they're not trump he's going to have a real mess to clean up i think on the regular with people like to leave in the squad in in congress but you know and this is a bit of a digression so we can get right back to the middle east but you know what we're not talking about russia no one is talking about resetting Russia policy, which is the first time in the last three consecutive presidencies we've had an incoming president who didn't blame the state of the atrocious state of relations on the last president. And all we need to do is have some sort of a rapprochement and we can get back to the kind of collegial relationship we experienced precisely 1993 to 1994. Um, that, that's, that's the ideal foreign policy with regards to Russia, which is a tacit admission, a wonderful tacit admission that... A, Democrats are suddenly now uncomfortably hawkish with regards to Moscow, and B, that the Trump administration had an uncomfortably hawkish relationship toward Moscow. Well, you know, it'll be funny to see whether all of this, you know, four years of, you know, the, of, uh, of, of sudden neoconservatism toward the evils of, of, uh, of the Cyrillic alphabet and things expressed in things expressed in the Cyrillic alphabet uh, will suddenly disappear and vanish from the, from the democratic party. Now that Trump is gone. Um, you know, uh, when I, when, you know, when uh, the haughty ministrations of David Korn of mother Jones, um, who was the, uh, research assistant to IF stone, who was a Soviet agent in the United States, as we revealed in an article in 2009 by uh, Harvey Claire and John Haynes, uh, 
you know, for to hear him intoning about the evils and the dangers of the Russian penetration of our elections, like this tartuffery, it'll be very interesting to see, you know, will it be January 23rd or January 25th that it ends? Well, that's why it's relevant to the Rashida Tlaib things, because, you know, in a completely ideological I, I approach to foreign policy, then, yeah, the Democratic Party would probably be much more comfortable with Tlaib's approach than Tony Blinken's. Um, but geopolitical realities have a compelling power all their own. And there's simply no way to pursue that kind of a policy that wouldn't be entirely detrimental to American national interests. And that's the sort of thing that you can only see from behind the resolute desk or at an institution like Foggy Bottom. Well, let me that, ask that you, aren't ideological. Christine, as a student of wokey of the woke culture, uh, do you help think? <laughs> do you think that uh, so Rashida Tlaib said what she said, and other people say things and all of that? Does woke Democratic Party culture do they care about foreign policy? I would say they do not care about foreign policy. The woke people who would stand in for wokeness in previous generations or whatever the version of wokeness was then, were very consumed and interested in American foreign policy because they hated America and they hated what America did abroad and they hated all of that. I My sense is that that the uh, that wokeness is so interior, so belly button, navel uh, picking, and so much about the evils of the United States from within the United States that they could give a damn what our policies are well, I'd say two things to that. One, which was interestingly touched on kind of as an aside in that blanket interview with Walter Russell Mead, is they care to the extent that that um, they can cause chaos and disorder at home enough that kind of gives them leverage for whatever they want. And if that includes causing chaos and disorder, you know, Blinken says in the interview, you know, China, these other countries are looking at us, they see all this, you know, uh, internal disorder, that's bad, that's bad, because they think we're weak. But I will say this, I think they care to the extent that foreign policy moments give them symbols for what they claim to believe. So the perfect example is anything about the border. You know, we have all these, you know, it's now actually become kind of a hilariously sarcastic meme on conservative media of like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez performing her emotive, you know, horror at seeing a fence, you know, on the border. So there's a, there's a, they will use a foreign policy moment in order to make their woke point. And in that sense, the only important question is whether the Biden administration feels it has to respond to that, because then it could screw up certain policy decisions. For them, it's rhetorical, I agree, but they care to the extent they can use it as a lever for power. I, I think they, they care when it comes to two issues. Um, one is Israel, because they have found a way to tie that directly to their domestic woke concerns. They see the Palestinian cause as um, symbiotic with the uh, cause of American minorities, and they link um, uh, faulty American policing erroneously and insanely to, you know, uh, Israeli military training and whatnot. There's that. And um, they care when uh, it comes to Latin America. I think they, they like to talk about any U.S. engagement with Latin America as a continuation of imperialism. Um, so when the it, Trump administration um, uh, took a turn, hard turn on Venezuela, for example, um, all the Wokies, you know, uh, the, came out of the closet to to, you know, side against sort of democratic forces around the world. 
uh, to side against them and and talk about how uh, how evil uh, this this move was on the Trump administration's part. So it is about domestic policy. Yeah. It's about socialism, yeah. which they like, mm-hmm. of which China doesn't evince particularly anymore the kind of Marxism that they that, that they like. So it's really much pretty much Cuba and Venezuela, and that's basically all I got. North Korea, but like who likes North Korea? Nobody likes North Korea. And then intersectionality, and in, in intersectional terms, there's. Jews and Asian Americans are basically white now. Um, and so you have to uh, approach foreign policy in those kind of chauvinistic, jingoistic terms. Um, in, there's an interesting development. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu apparently uh, met this weekend with uh, Saudi power behind the throne or whatever you want to call him, uh, Mohammed bin uh, Salman. Um, and what's interesting about this is uh, one presumes that they are meeting to discuss the question of whether or not they might want to rush a formal recognition of a diplomatic relationship between the two countries before Biden comes in to do this while, you know, to do this as the Trump administration is walking out the door so that the Biden people don't g- muck this up, um, which would be the staggering culmination of what I would say would be an unambiguous, the most unambiguous American foreign policy success of the 21st century. If in fact the Trump administration were to end with the Saudi Arabia and Israel establishing formal diplomatic relations, it almost seems science fictional to me, but I mean, obviously the deals that have been made thus far, particularly with the UAE have happened with implicit Saudi uh, consent and it is, of course, the thawing between Israel and Saudi Arabia behind the scenes over the last six years that has made all of this Abraham Accord stuff possible. I mean, it sort of starts there. Uh, but, of course, that's also where it has to end. I mean, that's where it has to culminate. It has to culminate with the richest and most powerful of the Arab nations um, formally recognizing Israel. And that will, that really punches the heart out of really the last 70, 70 odd years of, uh, you know, sort of the status quo in, in the Middle East. I think it happened. But it's not going to happen. Really? Oh, well, there you go. I, okay, good. No, well, I was going to say, it's not going to happen during the lame duck of the, of the Trump presidency. Faisal denied this meeting. I don't particularly believe that, but they're not going to give this, give this present to the Trump administration to the, the Saudis are on uh, walking on eggshells when it comes to the incoming democratic administration already. So they're being cautious about it. Abe. I think it happens because things of, because um, think of how fast the follow on normalization announcements happened after the, uh, the initial Abraham, of course you had uh, Bahrain and you had Sudan. Um, I forget. I'm, I'm missing uh, uh Another announcement. Yeah. Uh, Serbia? Was that what was that the. Oh, there are, yeah, no, anyway, anyway. But yeah, yeah. but I mean, it, it moved, it's moved with lightning speed. Um, and I think, I think they are, there is some pressure now to do this um, uh, before, before um, the Biden team comes in and has an opportunity to, to uh, throw a wrench in the works. I mean, they, they won't necessarily throw a wrench in the works. It's more like they, 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 they introduce an element of uncertainty that if this is something that MBS wants to do mm-hmm. uh, and wants to get done, um, he might want to do it sooner rather than later because he doesn't know what the consequences, what, 
what they will be asked to do to be a part of afterwards, which could be nothing. It could be fine, but he doesn't know that. Um, I mean, there's also little things you can do that would project, create essentially a, a, a status quo that is relatively similar to what happened, what exists with the UAE. That doesn't go as far as formal normalizations, you know. Well, they've well, done yeah. some, they've done some of it. Yeah. yeah, they have. I mean, they allow like overflights now. I mean, little yeah. things like that where you can essentially communicate where policy is going without jumping right into formal normalizations. I might be wrong. It could happen in the next couple of weeks. I just feel like it would be um, a real a real gambit on the part of Riyadh, really putting the screws to the to the Biden administration in a way that would put them in a position that they would resent. And that's just sort of risky. I don't know why, though, interestingly enough, because, let again, let's put it this way. Let's say that the Biden administration thinks that on balance the Abraham, the Abraham Accords are fine or good or something like that. Like they're unhappy with the way Israel deals with the Palestinians, but they're happy with the Abraham Accords. Um, but it causes them a certain amount of domestic tension. It causes They don't want to build on a Trump administration success. So maybe it would be better if it was all done and then they come in. You see what I'm saying? Like they don't, they don't need to get themselves involved in fulfilling the last, you know, putting the last bricks in the Trump administration's, you know, edifice. Uh, The edifice is built and then they deal with the aftermath. Right. right. That also preserves them from having to deal with their own domestic constituents. Exactly. Who have not liked this. Yes. Right. 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 I, I want to make one final point about the wokeness and its effect on the Biden administration. I take this from uh, Mark Halpern's excellent newsletter. Um, he he constantly cites the fact that Biden is a computer illiterate. He's not big on the internet. He doesn't. They don't care about Twitter. One of the geniuses of the Biden campaign was that they did not play to Twitter. They didn't pay attention to Twitter. They didn't worry about Twitter, and they did not let it affect their strategy one iota, including when things started going bad for them in January of this year when Iowa went south uh, for them in particular. Uh, And Biden doesn't care. And Obama did like Obama was sitting in his in the Oval Office reading. I mean, it wasn't Twitter, but you know, he was reading uh, Andrew Sullivan. He was reading blogs. He was sitting there, you know, not all that dissimilar from hmm. Trump, although he was reading longer stuff. Like he was very much a person with a phone and addicted to his phone like everybody else. And obviously Trump is very much the same. A president who is not that is somebody there will be counted. There will be. Everybody else in his administration may be that, but if the pressure isn't coming from above and if Biden isn't looking to see how he's getting reviewed hour by hour by hour, because that's not the way that he handles things at the age of 78, he just turned 78 this weekend, that's going to have a different, that's going to change the way Twitter affects the politics of the present moment. Because if the president isn't driven by Twitter, if the president doesn't care, his intimate circle won't care. And when they come to him and say, we really have to deal with this because so-and-so said that, and he's like, what, what, what are you talking about? What hashtag? I don't even know what that is. I don't know. Could, could be a very different world. 
uh, because of course Plato's it sounds like a much better world, <laughs> right? But I mean, I mean, basically, if you don't see the shadows, you're not in Plato's cave. You know, if you don't, if the shadows, if if you're not scared of the shadows coming through, then you're not. If you're not tied down, so that's the only thing you can see, then you're not. Then it doesn't scare you. It's like voodoo, right? Like voodoo only works if you believe in voodoo. So the, here's my question, though. So. And this will sort of help determine how much um, Trumpism has captured uh, the the Republican Party and for how long. Do Republicans continue to respond to um, Twitter in the sense that, let's say, um, the Biden administration moves forward with a bunch of free trade deals? Do Republicans respond to the populists on Twitter and everywhere else? And um, sort of, you know, reify this turn against free trade um, at, with Trump out of office. I think that'll be a big test. I don't see how they don't continue to live in the very online world. I'm just saying. Yeah, I it's can not see about how, age because yeah. Nancy Pelosi lives in that world and she's what yeah. 80. Like, well, I mean, they, you know. Yeah. All I mean is like um, if there are 200 people whose entire futures depend on the mood of Joe Biden and Joe Biden isn't on Twitter, then that's fine. But if, but if the mood still depends on if Biden's not your focal point and Trump is still your focal point or senators or, you know, I mean, they're all, they're all Ted Cruz is on there trying to, you know, make sassy jokes and stuff for whatever reason, Uh, you know, and Marco Rubio is there every morning with a quote from the Bible and, Okay, but it's in the Republican case, it's not Twitter. It's Facebook, which is a distinction without a difference to a lot of people, but it really deserves to be because it's it's where it's, you know, where the real fever swamp stuff lives. And it's where the Republican demographic hangs out, which is older and more affluent and whiter, um, which is not what Twitter is. Twitter is much um, more left and progressive. Yeah, but the effect, uh, yeah, but the effect of Facebook, it's it, uh, Twitter. You, we can see in real time, Twitter having an effect on the national conversation, minute by minute. You know, hour by you know, just as just as people could see the effect that Fox and Friends was having on setting the agenda at the White House that day. Right, <laughs> Trump would watch Fox and Friends, and then he would tweet something, and then we'd be talking about that all day instead of something else. Uh, Facebook is a sort of has a longer provenance, and it's not quite as clear what things are busting through because it's so big, right? It's it's 10 times the size of Twitter, has 10 times the audience of Twitter, and the enge- people's engagement with it is is much more um it's it's less visible in part cuz the sea is so big. So so that 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 won't have an immediate effect, but it can have a lo- longer effect like the fact that Don Bongino uh, is now, you know, like the second or third most popular person on Facebook can have real consequences in Republican elections and stuff like that, I assume. But I don't know that he'll have an effect on the daily conversation in the same way. Let's just say. So with that, we will bid you uh, a fond farewell until tomorrow. Uh, for Abe, Christina, no, I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning.